This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. All right, listeners, really, really cool episode for you today. I have on Crystal Harrell, who is just a fascinating story. Grew up nine siblings, lost her father to cancer at the age of 11. And to fast forward, because if I tried to list every accolade of, of crystals at this point, it would be a very long intro. But she has written a top-selling book. She's about to graduate from Yale with a PhD in public health and behavioral sciences. She was a Division One athlete. She's won a gold medal. She graduated from Auburn with her master's degree. Army ROTC fought to get $670,000 in funding to get herself to school and through school. And today we talk about a ton. We talk about a little bit of imposter syndrome and, and what drove her, what motivated her, how her childhood and some childhood trauma affected her throughout life, her perspective now on public health and on success and on making choices. We get to so much in this episode and it was one of those episodes where when I finish it, I'm just motivated. I just wanted to go do so much because she's just such a positive person on top of, of course, just an impressive one. So I'm excited for all your feedback on this one. As always, please rate and review after you listen to it and 100% enjoy. All right, listeners, we are on with Crystal. Crystal, thanks so much for joining today. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Could we kick off with, with a little bit of just your background and, uh, and how you got here today? Yeah, of course. So my family is from Liberty City. If you follow Les Brown, if you heard of Les Brown, he talks about Liberty City quite often. Um, but it's a very um, disadvantaged part of Miami, Florida, which well, it used to be in the 80s and 90s. And you know now it's a little bit different these days. Um, but my family is from Liberty City. And when I when my mom was about six months pregnant with me, they moved from Liberty City to small town rural Alabama. So it's a very small town called Ozark. Uh, there she and my father raised me and my nine other siblings on government housing. So it was nine of us in a little, you know, <laughs> apartment in public housing. And it was, you know, we didn't have a lot, I guess, materialistically, but we had a lot of love in, in my household. Both my parents were ministers. And so they raised us in faith. They raised us in love. And um, whenever I was about 11 years old, when I was 11 years old, I lost my father from cancer. So that event really changed a lot. Um, I had to grow up very quickly, as you can imagine. And um, a lot of my, you know, teenage years and a lot of my, you know, early 20s looked like, you know, just dealing with that at an emotional level, but also still trying to function and still trying to achieve my goals. And whenever I was about 23, that's when I started my um, personal development and spiritual growth journey because I realized that I was not healthy. And um, that's around the time I got into public health. And that led me to Yale University. Uh, talk about, we have a lot to get into today. And I'm excited about all of it, but you said not healthy. You know, I guess, what do you mean by that? So I guess physically, like I was, I was a track. So I ran a track when I was in college, I was a D one athlete. So I guess physically I was healthy, but health is actually a state of well-being, both mentally and physically. And I think a lot of people forget about the mental level of health and how that plays a role into your physical health as well. And so whenever I was I think I was in the sixth grade. So this was around around the time my father first passed away. I started to suffer from panic attacks and I had no idea that that was related to childhood trauma. I was also getting like anxiety in the classroom. And I went through this state of just like always being extremely sad. It could have been depression, but you know, my family, like I said, was very religious. So we didn't really go to doctors or, you know, do the whole, you know, shrink thing. So, <laughs> so I didn't know what, what was going on. I just knew that I didn't feel good. And this was very often and and the only time that I could escape that was through academics. And that's why I became this overachiever. That was a trauma response to try to gain external validation because I didn't feel good internally. And so 
I realized that I wasn't healthy when I started um, studying for my first master's, which was, it was a human science degree. It was human development and family studies. And that's when I took a child development course and realized that if a child goes through a, tra- a traumatic event and it isn't addressed at that time, it ends up manifesting itself as an adult mental illness like depression, like anxiety. And it also has been associated with panic attacks. And I learned all of this from a class. So I was just like, and that's, that class really made me, you know, step back. Cause I was just like, okay, like I'm not as healthy as I thought I was. And so that's when I started to go get counseling and therapy. And it really changed a lot for me. And I can honestly say I'm not the same person as I was, you know, in my adolescence, in my um, early twenties, because I went through the process of really trying to heal that trauma um, and actually find a cure for what was happening instead of treating the symptoms of that. Sure. Uh, It's so interesting. I've seen, so maybe you can answer this. I've seen research on childhood stress and how it manifests as an adult but how there's this proper amount, I would, I would describe it as of stress, right? Where if we're kids that ex- are exposed to a little bit of stress become more resilient adults. But of course, now there's the extremes. There's extreme childhood trauma, like you went through losing a father. So, you know, a parent so young versus zero stress or being handheld and spoon fed too much and how that makes it, you know, it, where do you feel like you fall in that spectrum? And have you read that research at all? I think I kind of read, dabbled in that research. I I had to read a few articles about good stress, I believe it's called, like um, whenever I was studying my first degree. But um, I realized that having that small amount of stress is good. Like you said, with building that resiliency and with really understanding proper coping mechanisms, but it's when that stress is, um, it kind of builds up over time. So it's a concept called allostatic load, which means that you experience stress over a very long period of time. And our bodies are meant to go through stress. Like we, at an evolutionary standpoint, that's what we're meant to do. But when that stress is actually prolonged and it's not maybe a animal, it's now like school is a job, you know, like that's not good. And so like it builds up over time and then it ends up manifesting itself into physical elements like this is, you know, in the literature. So I do believe that there's kind of that threshold, but I, I, I can't tell you what the threshold yeah. is. I, I think that it's kind of like intuitive. You, you know, you kind of have to know that like if a child and we, we cope with stress in different ways, like me and all my siblings dealt with the death of my father in totally different ways. Yeah. Um, and so you have to, you know, it, it depends on the person. And, and that's why I think that health should definitely be personalized as well. It depends on, you know, how they cope, have they developed proper coping mechanisms to help them overcome this trauma or this stress. And not everyone goes through trauma, but a large majority of the population does. Uh, well, and that's what's so fascinating that you could be in a household with so many other siblings and have such different outcomes. You know, I think we yeah, assume, that- you know, and especially, and, and not just in the same household, but literally so close, so tight knit. Mm-hmm. So for you, yeah, we talked about how you became what you called an overachiever. You started looking for accolades. Yes. So it's around the college time that you that you're realizing this. At that point, how many different accolades are are you chasing? Can you talk on <laughs> what what success, you know, degrees and what that type of attention, what kind of void that filled for you? Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. And I talk about it in more detail in my book as well as like yeah. when the, the starting point actually happened. And it actually happened when I was in middle school. So my father passed away when I was in the sixth grade. And then in the seventh grade is when I really like my interest in education became a passion um, because my dad was my first educator. And so when I was learning, that's when I felt closest to him. And I'm I've consider myself a philomath, like I'm a lifelong learner. And so like, to me, education is a tool. It's something that no one can ever take away from you. And so when I was in the seventh grade, I remember we moved schools because, you know, my mom couldn't afford to continue to pay rent where we were. And so she moved into the old trailer of my grandmother's um, and even more rural than than Ozark. It was called Texasville. And as you can imagine, it was very, uh, Just nothing but cows out there. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we moved into this trailer out in the country, and um, and so in the seventh grade, like I changed schools, and at this school, I kind of like assumed this new identity of being like the new kid. You know, she's smart, blah blah blah. You know, I was teased for the way that I spoke and all of this other stuff, but I kind of just like embraced that kind of like nerdy student type, you know, personality. Mm-hmm. And when I was in the seventh grade, there was a contest going on. And, you know, whoever had the highest math score in the seventh grade would, would you know, win or 
like a, I think it was like a $25 gift card. And so I didn't really know that I was going to win it. I was just, like I said, I became like this overachiever, started to do really well and assume this identity as a smart student. And I remember when they announced the names of the people who won and my name was called as the first place winner. And someone whispered in the back of the class and they were like, I didn't know she was smart. And I was just thinking like, I didn't know I was smart either. But it was like when everyone started clapping and like, you know, like it was like that, that moment I was like, okay, like I'm not getting the attention that I need at home because, you know, my mom is stressed out and there's so much going on in my home life. But at school, like I could really become this person who stands out. And so that's when I really started to get into that chasing the accolades and chasing, you know, being the smartest student. And by the time I graduated from high school, I was number five out of 200. And I kind of got bumped down to number seven, but I wasn't upset because seven is my favorite number. So I was like, okay, it's all right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So like that happened. And then, you know, ended up getting the $670,000 in scholarship funding. I think I got like five scholarships, academic scholarships. And then you know, getting a master's degree when um, when I was 23 and then getting another master's degree a year later. And then now, you know, being at Yale, getting my PhD and, you know, graduating before, I, you know, getting my doctorate before I turned 30. Like that was all like, you know, I have to get it. I have to win. I have to be the best. And so I kind of just like, you know, like I said, assumed this identity of the overachiever. But at 23, when, you know, I started the personal development and spiritual growth, that's when I was like, nothing is going to give me happiness. Like I thought I was going to be happy when I got my degree and I wasn't, I was actually even more miserable than before. And so when I turned around and I realized that my my well-being, my inner well-being is going to come from a place that I'm not looking. And so I really started to just work on myself and I worked on self-mastery. I started reading books like Psycho-Cybernetics, Think and Grow Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because I realized my relationship with money growing up in public housing was not the best. And so I had to increase my financial literacy. I just realized that everything that I needed to be fulfilled was was here and I was looking in the wrong place. And so now as I'm going through and I'm getting my final degree, it feels so much different now. Like it feels like, <laughs> it feels like I'm flying because I, I am not so concerned. Like if I get my degree, okay. If I don't get my degree, okay. Like it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So the same, the same success points are giving yes. you different fulfillment now. Yes. Would that be a good mm-hmm. way to put that? Yes. Uh, and to, and to give you some credit because you're a modest person, what was it, $670,000 you found in, in <laughs> yeah. funding? And that number is astronomical. Like, it's impressive. <laughs> and I'm more impressed today that we managed, like, your story is so cool that we oh, didn't even, that we didn't even talk about you being a division one athlete. But that's, <laughs> that's how cool your entire story is, that that was like, meh this kind of the side story that we don't have to get to that. So we never did, but I do, but I'm curious now, where did being an athlete, the strength coach in me is curious, where did the being an athlete fit with this imposter syndrome, with this success? Was it on equal level with the academic accolades or was it kind of another kind of a hobby for you? So when I was in high school, I started running all my, my family ran track. My dad, I used to go to the track with my dad when I was little and like run around, like my whole family was just really into track and field. And so naturally when I was in high school, I really got into track and field. I ended up becoming one of the, um, the coach, what do you call it? The captain of the track team, my senior year. And, um, I still hold a state record for the 400 for five, a girls. And then whenever I was wow. 18, I competed in Australia and won gold in the 100 hurdles. And so like, at this point, like I was 18. And I'm thinking, man, I'm really about to be a professional athlete. Like if I'm not a professional athlete, I don't want anything other than that. Like I really saw myself as this professional athlete, like next Flojo. Like I had, I, I dream big, like, like, really. (laughs) this is, this is amazing. Again, (laughs) listeners, I am not kidding her. We talk so much about her academic success and public health that we never talked about her being not only just a division one athlete, but now a gold medalist. Yeah, this, this is beyond humble. Because it feels like a I different lifetime ago. Cause I was sure. just like, this is what I really wanted. And I was really on that path. And then I got to college. Yeah. And I was the, I was in the very back of the pack. Like I was, 
I was in the back and I'm competing not only against like high school students from my state, I'm competing against high school students from Jamaica, the Bahamas, my coach, he was from the Bahamas. And so he recruited a lot of athletes from there. And so like, I'm literally like these people, like they have been running their whole entire lives. And like, this was like their thing. And I, and I thought it was my thing too, but like, I I could not compare. Like it was just night and day, but I will say that I made a very large improvement because I was competing with, you know, these athletes who ended up, you know, joining the Olympics. And it, and it's really cool too, because I'm like, Oh, like when I see them on TV, I'm like, Oh, I ran with them. Like, it's really cool. But like, I was <laughs> right. nowhere in that. And so I really like, I think it was my junior year. I realized that academically I was excelling, but when it came to track and field, like I could have, I could have really done this. And I sometimes like a piece of me, like looks back and it's just like, what would my life look like if I had kind of just like given that route, taken that route? And I, but I didn't, I chose academics because I was a better student than I was an athlete. I was further along as a student than I was as an, um, as a D1 athlete. And so I quit my senior year and I didn't return for the, my final season. And yeah, my coach is still very, you know, he's, he's very supportive even now, like we still talk and everything. And he really taught me just how to be a better person. And that's what, track and field gave me because I always think of my life as the 400. Like you start off strong out of the blocks, you kind of, you know, open up your stride on the 200 and then you get to the 300, you stay with the pack. And it's all about not who can run the fastest, but who can decelerate the slowest because we can only accelerate for a certain amount of time. And so what I realized about this race is that everyone is just trying to maintain their top speed. And that's, that hurts that last stretch of the 400. You just have to keep running. It's tough. It's tough, but, but you're right when you, and this is what I love about sports. The, the analogies, the metaphors never end. They never end for what they bring to you as, as a professional, as an adult, as, and as a parent, as a husband, you know, I I can look back to sports for every, every lesson I need, you know, and that's not to Mm -hmm. say that everyone has to be in sports, but, but as a parent of three, I, it is something I hope my kids embrace because I do think, I do think there's a lot of carryover and a lot of opportunity for growth that comes from, from being an athlete at all ages, at all ages, from, from, from youth through college and apparently the Olympics, <laughs> but um, <laughs> self-awareness, you know, th- to make that decision to say, I'm going to, before I necessarily have to put sports aside to focus on my professional growth. What was that decision like? Was it a hard decision at the time? And, you know, and can you talk about maybe the thought process for you that came into making that decision? Because I think that's a hard thing for people at all ages, at all stages to say, I have to make a decision between X, Y, and Z. And a lot of us, especially people like you and I, as we've discussed, who are probably low on the overachiever side, tend to try to jam ourselves with as much <laughs> as possible. And we take pride in it. And to use maybe a a not so great word, it can be stupid, right? We can be, or it can be inefficient. Yes. So, so, you know, can you talk about what goes into a decision like that? This is such a good question. Like I literally could talk about this all day. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I love sports so much. And it's still like, as you can tell, like sometimes it makes me a little emotional because like, I really want it to be a professional athlete. And like, not that I don't love my life now. Like I really love that I'm on the track of becoming, you know, a doctor and like graduating from an Ivy league, that that is something I could have never imagined on my own. So it's, it's really hard because, you know, you're faced with this dilemma and it was, it was, like I said, my junior year of college. And I was just realizing I was taking on way too much. And it really hit me when I passed out. I was, cause I'm also in the military. So I was also doing ROTC on top of that. So I was a, I was an athlete. I was doing ROTC and I was also teaching as a, a teaching assistant. So I was a undergrad teaching assistant, but I was holding a graduate student position because they didn't have any more graduate students. And I was basically the only one who could teach this class. And so I was recruited to teach a class and the, and the department paid me to do it. So I was like, okay, like I'm going to do this, but the, I was doing so much. And I was at, um, I was in ROTC and I was going to class and we had a formation and I was just standing there um, in the formation and I passed out. I didn't eat that day. I was not sleeping well because I was, I was juggling so much. And I was also, you know, trying to call myself in a relationship as well. So it was just like a lot, like there was just so much. And when I passed out, 
it really made me think about the trajectory of my life. Like I wasn't just thinking about college. Like this is my junior year. I was about to graduate and I needed to know like what was next. I I always think big picture. Um, My personality type is INFJ. And it was the same as Oprah and MLK, just a few, you know, tags. (laughs) (laughs) Small names, a couple small names. No big deal. (laughs) No, it's just 1% of the population. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just like, I I had this personality that was like really trying to do a lot. And like, I didn't want to let anybody down. And so... Yeah, when I pa- after I passed out, like the next day, I had to make that decision, and it was very hard, and I cried. And even while I remember walking to the track and field building, like walking to the facility, and like knowing that I'm about to have this conversation with my coach, and he didn't make it hard, but he also didn't make it easy. It was kind of like he just was like, okay, and yeah, <laughs> okay, and then that was it. And so, so I was just like, okay, <laughs> so almost silently supported. So not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, that's, I can only imagine. And obviously not obviously, but you know, an event like that doesn't make the decision easier, but it almost, I guess, forces a decision. Yeah. You know, more than anything, nothing makes it easier. That's definitely not yeah. the right word for it, but you know, you, you've mentioned now a few times coaches and I want to talk about mentorship mm-hmm. and the importance of having good mentors, which now you are to many, and we'll get to that side of it. But, but what has the right mentors been and meant to you? Mike, they mean so much that if I didn't have them, I would not be having this conversation with you. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't know where I would be without having the mentors and the, the instructors and the teachers who really just saw the bigger picture. And I first really got into that. You know, I was intentional about finding mentors and coaches because after my father passed away, it was just like one of those things that I knew. And I was only 11 at the time, which I don't even know why I had this thought or how I had this thought. I just thought it. I was just like, I'm not going to try to look for something in a relationship that I felt with my dad, like I knew I just wasn't going to do that. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, if I don't, you know, go to like a boyfriend or like a partner, then I'll just get a coach. I'll get a mentor, someone who can serve as that father figure. And that's when I really got into track and field. I got into, you know, pretty much anything I can sign up uh, for, like any sport that I can put my name on that didn't, you know, have conflicting seasons I signed up for. So I was like in cheer and volleyball. So like all these things, just so I can have mentorship, someone to tell me what to do and I'll do it. Um, which is probably why I went into the military as well. I'm, I like following directions, <laughs> but um, it was just like one of those things. I was like, okay. And, and along the way, um, some mentors, they kind of see something like they see you on your way and they see that you need to truck instructions. And sometimes they'll reach out to you. But a lot of my mentors, I went and found like Les Brown and all these people like I was just watching YouTube videos. Yeah, I didn't have that, you know, one-on-one conversation with a lot of my mentors at the time, but I you never know what could happen because last year I actually did have the chance to have that one-on-one conversation with my mentor Les Brown. So anything can happen, cool. honestly. <laughs> but if cool. you don't put yourself in these situations to be coached, to be mentored, then it's it's less likely. You really have to speak up and tell people what do you need. But if you don't have that awareness to know what it is that you want, then it's very difficult, you know. Yeah, well, and what a mature concept to even start thinking about at eleven. Like I, I really where it came from. <laughs> I, well, that's it's you know, it, to you know, they say that you know certain events make you grow up faster than you should. You know, and and obviously that is one, but still, what an impressive concept. And I guess it, you know, in a way, I call it fortunate, call it whatever you want, but you know, what a what a great concept to latch onto because mm-hmm. you know, I, I I can only assume you you've obviously you've spoken this. So I'm not assuming what it meant to your future success that you, that you had that strategy. And on your website, you just said you were intentional about finding mentors, you know, and now on your website, you even say you're, you know, you want to help others get what was provided to you. I want to make the point that it wasn't just provided. It didn't walk into your life. You didn't just, you didn't just start going to school and was like, and this, you know, some random professor was like, I'm going to start mentoring you, you know, (laughs) you, you took the time to realize what you needed. I think, I think if there's a, if there's the biggest takeaway that I've gotten from you, if I can pick one of the many, <laughs> it's, it's the awareness that you have, the, the ability that you've had over the course of your life to take a step back and reevaluate and continue to do that. Mm-hmm. I think if there's one skill set that many people are missing, it's that. I think we become, we, we just, we get into routine. 
we become very defensive in life. We defend yes. our, we defend how we are. We say, it's not me. You know, we don't take the mm -hmm. chance to step back and say, here's what I need. Here's maybe what I'm doing. Not wrong, but maybe here's what I could do better. And, and I think that's great. But I love that you not only did that, but you take the steps to go get it, to go get what mm -hmm. you need. You know, and another example was you talked about how every time you got a rejection letter from college, you filled out two more applications. Yes. <laughs> it you was know? my, it was the only way. <laughs> but you did it. Yeah. You know, the, the, the way can be clear or not, but you still have to take the action, you know, and yeah. I can go into a whole tangent <laughs> on, on that because that's something I talk about often in, in my career, you know, in it's fitness. one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite topics. Action and, and, <laughs> and you have to take it. So I guess let's talk about it in the realm of, of you. You know, what steps, what goes into the action process for you? So after you do your self-reflection, you know, what does the action process mean to you? Yeah, so I guess I'll just you know, talk about the first. So you, you brought up the scholarships and, and so it was the first day of my senior year. And like I said, I knew that I wanted to go to college. I knew that my mom couldn't pay for it because she was a single mother now. And there was just so much going on. And I was told by a guidance counselor that, you know, I should just go to a community college because, you know, even if I did get into Auburn, there was no way my family would be able to uh, afford it because of their situation. And she wasn't trying to be malicious. I don't think that people are naturally malicious. I just think sometimes we're operating from a certain level of awareness. And sometimes we try to push that onto other people and we don't know what their capabilities are. And so once you realize that everyone's operating from different levels of awareness and sometimes people push their insecurities onto you unknowingly and it's okay because when you know who you are, then it's okay. So like, even though that did hurt, I was like, okay, I know that I can get into this school. I just need a way to pay for it. And that's when I started asking questions. I went to people who had gotten money for, you know, college and I asked them, how did they do it? I went to educators, like my English teachers, and I asked them to read over my applications, like read over the essays from my, uh, from my awesome. applications. I went to, you know, a different guidance counselor and asked them <laughs> if they knew about, you know, some scholarships specifically for minority students. Like I just used everything that had happened to me. I used what I had and I use it for my advantage. Like there's certain things that you can get because you have certain characteristics or because certain events happen to you. Absolutely. So there were scholarships for people who had low ACT scores. I'm not a good standardized test taker. I will write a paper for you in an hour and it will be the best thing you've ever read. <laughs> like I'm, I'm a writer. Yeah. But if you put an exam in front of me, I will freeze. And that's just what it is. And so I yeah. had to, I understood my academic strengths. And so I didn't score well on my ACT, but there was an, uh, there was a scholarship that you couldn't have a high ACT score. So I applied for that one. So there was like different strategies I had to take. And when Smart. I, decided to take action, I realized, okay, I didn't have internet at home. And so I had all these voices in my head telling me why it wasn't going to work out, but I realized that I'm not my thoughts. And so if I had this feeling inside of me that it was possible, then I wanted to act towards the feeling that made me feel the best. And a lot of times people take action towards things that doesn't make them feel good. And I don't, I don't understand why, because you have the opposite thought for every action, there is the opposite and equal reaction. This is, you know, a universal law. So you have to realize that if you're acting towards something that doesn't make you feel good, you're only going to get more of what doesn't make you feel good. And so I knew that in order to feel good, in order to have the thing that I wanted, I couldn't see the whole staircase, but that was okay. I could see the first step. And that looked like me going to the library every day to use the internet to find scholarships. I Googled a lot of the scholarships that I applied for. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's just that. It's just taking those small action steps and not trying to eat the whole cake and just eat it slice by slice. And that's okay. And go towards the thing that makes you feel good. Absolutely. You know, it, I, this is, it's fantastic. And it's such a good lesson. You didn't accept the, the status quo. Because you're right. How many, I mean, the percentage has got to be way past 99 of people that would say in your situation, take what I can get, jump into community college yeah, and see where I go. And, but, and for the there's, record, nothing there's nothing wrong, wrong with it. Absolutely it not. just wasn't my goal. My goal was all yes. university. So I was like, this is where well, I want to be. <laughs> and I think there's, you know, and I talk I, probably annoyingly to my members and clients, I talk about the fact that, you know, there's, if you can reach for the ideal, you should. And this, this is a comment, you know, my kids are a little too young to start grasping, you know, concepts like this. <laughs> but it's, I do, I really do believe in this. There's mm -hmm. a lot of different paths up the mountaintop, but if you can reach for the ideal, I do think you should. Yes. I think you owe it to yourself to do that. Mm -hmm. So no, there is nothing wrong. I, I stopped off at a community college on my, on my path to my master's. I did because mm -hmm. I, ne I needed, 
I, and I, I think I needed that at the moment. I think I needed a break, right. a break where I, where I did right. something that was a little less intensive and just, you know, I focused on football for a semester and that's just what I did. Yeah. But you didn't accept that that was the only path. And you realized that, yes, that would be, a, you, you had that fallback option. You could always yeah. go to do that, but you, you did a lot of work and a lot of research and a lot of just educating yourself to look for the ideal. Mm-hmm. And as much as I do, and I still think there's not, there's nothing wrong with community college. You can still find a path to greatness through it. Maybe you aren't where you are today. If you would have accepted the path of least resistance, maybe you are, but maybe you're not, you know, cause That's not good. only, and it's not just Auburn and Yale. Yes, of course. Those are fantastic, you know, <laughs> institutions that have taught you a lot. But it was also the path to get into those was in itself a life lesson. Like yes. now you have this story that like I, I can only imagine what you're going to achieve in the next, you know, <laughs> 70, 80, 100 years, because you always have this memory to pull out of your brain of, no, when the time came to it, I found a way. So I'll find a way for this, too. I think that's the powerful part that people have to realize. Uh-huh. Once you do something that seems unlikely or impossible once the door to your opportunities just fly open. Yes. So yes. I'm, I'm on wow. a passion. I'm on a passion note here. I, <laughs> so, I love that because but, like I can feel the passion and everything you're saying is hundred percent like success is compounding. Yes. You know? Yes. Yes. I, that's, and that's a great way to put it. Um, uh, so I just, I, I, I love, I think that's what I love. I, the on mm. paper, you are impressive, but it's the side stories. It's just the in between. It's that, <laughs> It's how you fought to get to these things that in my mind is even more impressive because it actually took, you know, I, it's, a, it's my, it's my favorite quote ever. And it comes from Kobe Bryant where it's about his, where he talks about the journey. Oh, he talks I about, you, you don't even know your I love destination. I love, yeah. I love the points. So people have their destination in mind. They focus on that and it's stop it. Focus on the journey of the day to day because the destination is probably going to change anyway. Yes. By the time I have you that get quote there. saved on my phone. <laughs> it's it's I've posted it a few times and it's on my it's on my desktop. It's not even in a file because yeah. <laughs> I, I drag it into things so often. But it's my favorite quote ever. It's my favorite concept. I'm not a celebrity person. I'm not. I'm really not. Like I I, I take lessons from people. Yeah. But I think I, but I was more affected by his death, I think, than any other, just a quick side thing that yes. than any celebrity possibly could have because his quotes have like actually like motivated me and fueled me in moments. So it was, that yeah. was, a, that was a tough one, but anyway, it's my favorite quote and I love your journey. So before I keep rambling on about that. No, I love this so much. <laughs> I'm just like there's so many things like I'm taking from it and so many things, like everything you're saying is a hundred percent true. And I, I believe like, I, I hope that your listeners really feel that truth in there because like, this is, that's the secret. There is no secret to success. It's just a system. And you're revealing the system right before our eyes. <laughs> well, my, my listeners and your readers, I mean, that's, that's where the world needs people like you who are doing what you're doing, because at the beginning, they can't pull their own memory yeah. out. They can't say, I don't have my own success story to say, okay, I can repeat it now. But this person did that, which means it is possible. So let me give it a shot. So I think that's where, that's where what you do. And, you know, I'm thankful that people like you are writing books and are telling your story because it's, I think the human race needs it. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. You really yeah. have to get out of your own way. Um, for like people like us, we, I, I think that we kind of get so caught up in everything being perfect before we present ourselves to the world because we want to be perceived in this, you know, like you said, like we put our heart into everything that we do. So we want it yes. to be received that way. And I really had to get out of my own way because I was like, I'm a student. I can't write a book, but so many people kept asking me like, how did you do it? And I realized I couldn't coach everyone. Like I was like, I can't do this while I'm trying to finish my degree. And so I really had to get out of my own way. And I really like, I had a physical switch that I would like turn off. And like, that was my perfectionism switch. So I would turn it off when I was writing my book just so I could get the story out. And it was hard. Like I literally cried during writing my book because I was like, what are people going to think? Like, is this even helpful? You're living your story. So you have no idea. You you don't know what type of impact it's going to have. But I knew that I had to tell this story because there were people who, you know, look like, like, I don't know why I chose this form to, you know, appear in this world. Like, but I want people to look at me and say, okay, well, she's a minority. She comes from a very low income background. She literally lost a parent when she was young and had to deal with so much, like if she could do it. And I'm pretty sure there's people who have stories worse than me and, you know, not to compare trauma, but it's just like, I'm telling you, like, if I can do it, I'm not the smartest 
person in the world. <laughs> I just yeah. work really hard and I'm, I found my passion. And when you walk in your passion and your truth, that's where success happens. If you're doing something you don't love, it's very, very difficult to find success in that. I, it's so, 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 so well said. And you're right. It's not a comparison. Everyone has their own obstacles, mm-hmm. their own adversity in their life. But yeah, but in the end, you got to find what really fuels you, not what you, not what you want to fuel you. Yes. All right. Well, again, we can go through this all day, but I do want to change gears <laughs> a little bit. I'm going to go now. So, I mean, you've succeeded in so much and I had to make a decision what we're talking about. The army <laughs> didn't even like, now that you kicked the D1 athlete and that didn't make it as much, but I do want to talk about <laughs> public health because mm-hmm. now, so now after you fought and you're into college and you've done all, all you've done, now you are, you're about to graduate from Yale with mm-hmm. your PhD and you've chosen public health. I want to talk about public health specifically. So you know, what is one in general, what's your future in public health? But maybe the first question is, what do you think are the current biggest challenges in public health? And I realize that might be a very big, um, <laughs> big umbrella, but what's the first thing that comes to your head? Have. <laughs> yeah, I got all day. I'll clear up the schedule. <laughs> oh man. Um, so public health, I love public health. So this is what I love about public health is that it's actually concerned with the action part of scientific research. So before I was in human development and family studies, and I remember asking my advisor, what happens after I run this analysis and I get my results, like what happens? And he's like, oh, it just goes to publication and you influence science. And I thought, influence science? <laughs> that's <laughs> What <all>. the heck? <laughs> like, no, like that's not, that's not good enough for me. And so when I was listening to, a, a, he was a social epidemiologist from Emory named uh, Dr. Michael Kramer. And I remember during his seminar, cause he was holding a seminar in the program that I was in. And I remember the whole time while he was, you know, giving this presentation, my heart was racing. Like I was literally sitting on the edge of my seat. Like this is like not even being dramatic. Like my heart was just (laughs) racing. And I was like this, I don't know what epidemiology is. I don't know what public health is, but this is what I want to do for the rest of my life because it took the scientific research that I was already doing, but it added an action piece to it. It added a preventative measure to it. And to me, prevention is better than treatment. And it's like, this is in the literature. It's cheaper to prevent certain diseases than it is to treat them. Um, unfortunately, 100%. we're up, right, but we're, we're up against <laughs> yeah. so much. And <laughs> I mean, you're up against, these, these are billion dollar, probably trillion dollar industries that we're up against. And people are making money from people being sick, unfortunately. So until we change at the policy level, it's going to be really hard to see these trickle down effects. And like I said, like losing my father from cancer was the reason why I went into public health, because I thought if we had this type of knowledge in my community, maybe my dad would have, you know, had proper screening and the cancer probably wouldn't have made it as far as it did, you know, whenever he, you know, found out that he had cancer. So I think that you know, just understanding this from um, not only from a personal level, but also like a scientific level really added that extra oomph to like why public health was what I wanted to spend the rest of my life studying and what I wanted to spend the rest of my life teaching to people. And so now, you know, I'm into religion and health research because I guess I grew up religious Mm -hmm. and I wanted to know, like, you know, do people, you know, are people who are more religious, you know, or more spiritual, like, do they actually have better health health outcomes. And what I'm finding in the literature and from my own analysis is that they actually do. Um, And so now I'm trying to figure out like what mechanisms is that, you know, like what is on that causal pathway between religion, spirituality, and health, Um, you know, and part of it could be health behaviors. It could be, you know, like just your psychological conditioning as well as like how that affects your physical beingness. And so there's so many different ways you could look at this. Um, And so I'm just trying to figure out like what's the best way for public health professionals to really get into these communities and yeah. develop interventions that are culturally appropriate, which is very important to where we can make a positive change when it comes to health outcomes. I just don't believe that people who look like me should have worse health outcomes just because of the way they look or just because of the way the system is set up. Um, so I'm trying to figure out ways against that, but I, I realize what I'm up against. <laughs> yeah, but but if we don't have people that start getting into it, nothing will ever change. Because you're right. We the battle against the industry, big, big pharma, big food. It's I'm too, I'm too small to fight it by myself right now. Mm-hmm. What I can try to do is influence the people I'm around. I can do this podcast. I can, I can you know, I, I can do things, but you're right. That's, that's probably not There's people. Have, I think people like you need to fight that battle, you know, <laughs> but you know, but, uh, but that's hard. So maybe that's not the thing. So you're right though. Prevention is the key. So, you know, you're studying behavioral health. 
Mm-hmm. And this is something that you know is a passion of mine. I'm about to launch a virtual program completely around lifestyle changes and behavior changes. Nice. nice. If we can get more people to make better choices for themselves and to believe in the prevention model, which is hard when they haven't had the death of a close family member like you and I had. Like we, mm-hmm. we are fueled by a very similar, one similar thing, yes. right? My, my dad died of cancer. I do a lot of what ifing. What if, what if screening was better? What if his, what if his health was better? What if he didn't, what if he slept better? What if his stress wasn't so high? What if he didn't work four jobs to keep us, Mm. to keep food on our table and to keep us in, you know, in a, in a good house. I can, what if all I want, but it's, you know, it's hard for me to believe that certain behaviors wouldn't have helped him. Yes. So, you know, I guess where from, from a logistical standpoint in behavior change, where do people, where do people start that don't have that big wow moment that the death in the family, the thing that really pushes them into thinking about it. How do you start convincing people to, to live a little better and to do a little better that, that really don't have the motivation to do it yet? Well, if I'm not going to lie to you, Mike, if I had the answer to that question, I would have literally been like, get granted an honorary <laughs> doctorate degree. <laughs> and you would that, deserve it. Because yeah. Yeah. that's the research. Like, that's what we're trying to figure out. Like, how do we get people who have competing factors like I don't know, like poverty, you have food deserts and food swamps, you have, you know, like crime and criminality. So you have all of these competing factors. And do you think someone is going to be so concerned about future self and future health when immediately they're faced with so many stresses and so many challenges? So I think like, that's the work of public health. Like, how do we, how do we get people to care about their health in the now? You know, even though they seem healthy, even though they may not have to worry about developing cancer, you know, because they're in their, you know, their late teens or something like that. Like, you know, a lot of it's 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 just a matter of like, how do we get people to actually care about their health? And a part of me, like just based on the literature, just based on the research that that I do, a lot of it is the behavioral change part of it, like getting people to actually change these behaviors. So whether that's um, changes in diet physical activity, like these are very two important key, like very consistent factors across literature that helps people live healthier lives. But I I don't know how to do it. I mean, you have like campaigns like the Less Move campaign. Um, You have people, you know, focusing more on eating, uh, eating healthier, but I don't know, like I'm, I'm still trying to figure out like, how do you get people to care about their future health? And it's, we we have a lot of work to do. (laughs) We do, we do have a lot of work to do. And, and it is hard. And, you know, I, I think stuff like this does help. You know, I think slowly you get, but it's, but unfortunately the pace of progress is very slow. And when you're trying mm. to go a person at a time or a small group at a time, right? you brought up a point that I, I think people don't give enough credit to. And you're right. For the people that are in the very specific scenarios you listed, how can you expect people to think about later when they have no choice, but to be so reactionary day to day, when they have such love, when they have such high levels of stress and focus on the fact that, that there is poverty there, you know, everything you listed is, is such a real thing. And I think that's when people talk about, you know, the, I think when people start to become more comfortable in life, it's not that it's not that their opportunity for health is better in, in every way. But the point you just brought up is awesome. It's they, they have the mental room yes. to think about those type of things. I think maybe that's an avenue that's being missed yes. a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, how many people go off and study public health? So it's just like, I wouldn't have had access to this information if yeah. I didn't choose this route. And so that's why I feel like I have an obligation to really share that information. And maybe awareness is the starting point. Maybe people really don't know that they're you know, that their behaviors is leading to, you know, a lifestyle that's not so healthy. Maybe they don't know. And I kind of just like operate from that, you know, mentality that having people become aware of what the role they play in their own health and their own health behaviors, like that is the starting point. Um, Because I believe that, you know, living a healthy lifestyle, having health, you know, just like in all areas of your life, like that's a birthright. That isn't something that's just like set aside for a few people. Like everyone deserves to live a healthy life. And that's, like I said, that's mentally, physically, like spiritually, like whatever health feels like to you, whatever it feels like for you, like you deserve that because you're on this earth. And so it's hard getting people sometimes, I don't want to say it's hard, 
it just requires a lot more uh, work to get people to see that and to really break these um, cultural barriers. I believe a lot of the times it, it yeah. is where it goes into, because I mean, if you're told that this is what is, is expected of you, you know, there's a thing in sociology called um, self-fulfilling prophecy. And so sometimes if you're told like, this is what is expected of you, you're going to do something to fulfill that label. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just getting people to, to break past that barrier. And I believe it starts with self-awareness. It starts with personal development. You really, you know, it's, it's hard to change the world if you can't change yourself. And I know it's like super like, you know, cliche, but like, it really is. It, that's the truth. You have to work on you first. You have to be aware of you. And then you give that to other people. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. It's, it, it's, yeah, I'm a, I'm a board member for a company for a charity group called Big Shoulders Fund here in the Chicagoland area. And they work with, with right now it's 76 schools, Catholic schools in the Chicagoland area that are struggling mostly financially, but are in areas that are, are struggling with everything you just listed. And they do a lot, they, we do fantastic work with helping fix up the school and helping, you know, drive money to, to the school. But I think this is an opportunity too, for an organization that I'm a part of and other similar fantastic organizations, I think maybe this is an opportunity to where you're already in the schools. Mm-hmm. You already have this relationship with principals and community groups. You know, I think maybe this is where people like you and I can start saying, okay, well, since we're here anyway, can we bring this information and start putting it in? And I think that maybe that's an, uh, a good next step, yes. you know, and I'm sure there's groups out here that are doing this to, to give credit to other great people around, around our country and the world that are doing stuff like this. But I think maybe there's a big opportunity. Maybe that's maybe that's where we move to next a little bit. I agree. I agree. It's it's like I said, you don't know what you don't know. So I think that information starting at the the information that level, just getting the information into the schools would yeah. make a huge difference on its own, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, to go back to your story and to kind of come back full circle, this is something you were good about on your own, right? You you just sought out information first. And after you learn more. Then you start making different decisions and your, your exactly. perspective changes a little bit. And mm-hmm. maybe then you can not stop focusing on your day-to-day because you have to, it's your safety, it's your well-being, like you have to survive. But maybe now there becomes room for mm-hmm. other thoughts and other perspectives. And it's kind of like saving money. Like, yeah, I got to spend money on my bills, but maybe if I can just put a little bit of time, a little bit into this other pile, maybe it'll grow. So if I can start putting a little more thought into my health, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll grow. Um, and I think that's what you, like you, like you said before, if we already had this as a set answer, we would both be, yeah, <laughs> we would both be doing all right. <laughs> but I think the work that we we're doing now, just at the, the micro level, um, and we never know, like there's a ripple effect. Like you never yeah. know whose life you can change with the information that you have, Mike, and they go off to teach other people. And those people go off. Community is very connected. Like really, like we really are connected. And yeah. I think like just the work that you're doing to share the information and to walk in that being this, like, you're not only sharing the information, like you literally are what you teach, you know, like you are healthy, you are, you know, like both mentally and physically. So you're just like, okay, like I know this, I'm living this now. Can I walk in this? Can I teach other people how to walk in this? And you, we never underestimate how far that goes, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we're all, we're all have our own struggles with it. I think that's what people don't realize. You know, people probably read, your book or hear my podcast and go, well, they've got it. They've got it under control. No, Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I really, I, I, some days I feel like I've, I've got my decision-making under control. Then a week goes by where I'm like, man, that was a, for me, it was a bad week. You know, yeah. like we're yeah, all struggling with our own. through my bad week. We all have our ebbs and flows, right? Yeah. We, we all have them. It's, you know, the skill set is how we control those too, but we all have them. No, no one has just this set, like they're good all the time in, in every el- in every element of their life. No. It's just not, just not how the human brain works. No. So there's a lot of polar- polarity. Like for, like I said, like everything has an opposite. There's up, there's down, there's negative, positive. Like there's so many things that are opposite. So if things are going good, then just pre- use that momentum, use that, that mind space that, or that, um, that space that you're in to prepare yourself for when things are not so good, when things are going, like when things are down, just understand that you've overcame everything that was stacked against you previously. So it's, it's all mindset. Like, like I said, yes. like, that's the secret people develop strong mindsets. They develop those resilient mindsets and they use that throughout their life and it gets stronger as you go. It's so cool, honestly. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, that's, I, that mindset is the key. 
Crystal, what's next for you? You know, you're about to graduate <laughs> soon with your PhD. What's, you know, what, what should people know about? What should people be looking for next from, from you? Mm, that's a good question. I have my, my vision board on the back of the screen now. So there's a, there's a lot of things on here. <laughs> By the way, that's just but, not a lesson. Have a vision board. That's a cool one. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, um, it works. Like writing your down, your goals down is like one thing, but actually seeing like the vision board, like having this imagery, like for it's neurological, like you're, you get involved with it. Like it's science, you know, um, I don't can't really explain it right now, but it works. Um, but I think, like, sorry, I think, I think that's my favorite answer to everything though. It's just, it's just science. Just trust me. It's science. Just, right. just, just do it. It's, I like that. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. So go ahead. I like that answer. I always forget like exactly what level. I think it's like neurological or something, but it really works. I can't really explain how. But (laughs) it's interesting because I've been in school for eight and a half years. I don't like I've I literally went straight through. I've been in school this whole time. So I don't know what I look like outside of academics. And a part of me is kind of nervous because I'm like, this identity as a student is changing, you know, and Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, I've been blessed to be able to have my first book and have it become a bestseller and for that to be successful and, you know, to honestly just the impact that, you know, that it's made has blessed me so much. Like this has been writing a book was the most fulfilling thing I've ever done out of all the degrees, out of all the accolades. That was the most fulfilling thing because it wasn't for me. It was for someone else. So I would really like to like, after I'm done with school, maybe take a year off to just travel and expand my awareness of the world outside. Because I know Americans have this bad rap about like just being very uh, ethnocentric and like not really, you know, being aware, like what's going on in the other world. And so or in, you know, other parts of the world. Right. So I feel like that's a piece of me, like, cause I got the opportunity to live in Bali this year and, you know, travel to Europe to go see my boyfriend. And so it's just like, I'm noticing there's a lot of differences culturally, you know, from different parts of the globe and it, and, um, you know, some is good, some is bad, but it's just like, there's so much we can learn from just experiencing the life of other people and taking in their experience and as well. So I really want to take a year to just travel, maybe write, you know, another book. Um, I really want to have more paid speaking events, like maybe do my first TED talk or something like that. Just develop myself as a speaker and as a thought leader, because that's important to me. Like everything that I've learned on this journey, I want to be in a position to where I can give it away because my education wasn't just for me, you know? Awesome. Awesome. I can't think of a better way to end this episode. (laughs) So tell people where they can find you. Uh, you can find me. The best way is on Instagram because that's where I'm most active. I also host like weekly lives as well. So my handle is at Crystal Harrell underscore. So just my whole name with an underscore at the end. And my website is crystalclearinnovation.com. Um, there you'll find my book and also more resources. Um, my book is also on Amazon. So it's Crystal Clear, A Journey of Self-Discovery. And uh, yeah, if you need anything, just shoot me a DM. I usually re- uh, respond um, on the weekends because that's when I'm on social media. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Listeners, not that this episode didn't already do you justice, but it's it's tip of the iceberg. Go to the Instagram. The website alone is really, really cool parts of your story on it. And um, I, I, I have to admit first that I haven't, I've, I'm about to start your book and I can't wait. Um, but everyone, <laughs> everyone should, should hear this because there's takeaways for everyone. I don't care what your goal is, what your background is, what your profession is. It doesn't matter. There's, there's a lot of takeaways from your story. So thank you, Crystal, for being on. Thank you for telling your story. Just thank you for sharing everything you've, you've been through so far. Thank you so much, Mike. This has been honestly just a positive experience for me. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you. Hold on for a second. Listeners, listen to this episode and, uh, and future. And please don't forget to rate and review. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at Mar Health and Performance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day and see you next time.